Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. In 1876, a young girl named Abina had already escaped to freedom and was living a secure life in Cape Coast. But she wasn't satisfied. She wanted her experience of slavery to be acknowledged. And so she took her former master to court in the British-controlled Gold Coast of West Africa. Historian Trevor R. Goetz and artist Liz Clark have collaborated to bring Abina's story to life. Their new book, Abina and the Important Men, A Graphic History, with Oxford University Press in 2012, is aimed at students, but the story it tells certainly captivated me. We so rarely hear the voices of people like Abina. But Goetz and Clark know better than to claim they've simply restored her to history. Instead, they challenge the reader to think about gaps in the story, the impossibility of fully understanding Abina's world across time and space, and how history is inevitably an act of interpretation. Today, I'm going to talk to half of the team, Trevor Getz. Let's hear what he has to say. Hi, Trevor. Hi. Good to have you on the line. I'm so glad you're here with us today to talk about your book, co-authored with Liz Clark, Abina and the Important Men. Um... Why don't I ask you to start out by just telling us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to be a historian? How did you get interested in African history? Well, uh, thank you. And let me start by uh, thanking you for this opportunity and saying that I I, I love the podcast. Um, I think it's great. I'm glad to hear it, and I love the book. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Um, You know, in in actual fact, uh, this book is about as far in terms of uh, historical methodology and topic uh, as it could be from where I, where I started uh, some you know, 18 years ago. I originally wanted to be a military historian. Um, I grew up uh, sitting on my grandfather's knee while he described the war and his experiences in the war. And that, that sort of drove me into history. And I feel like it was a long slog in which I slowly discovered that there was more than just politics and military maneuvering to history. Um, as I, as I, did, my, uh, I did my master's uh, at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, uh, not long after the end of apartheid, where history was vibrant and real and contested, and the issues of the historian's public role uh, were present um, and being debated. Uh, I had students who hadn't learned formal history, students who had learned uh, their history on the streets, students who had been excluded from school or who had protested. Um, And as I became very interested in in, in really focusing on African history, I began to see that um, the issues of of what a historian does and what a historian studies are of real consequence. And uh, that uh, everyday experience and the perspective of people who aren't normally written about uh, can be can be very important. And I, I guess you could say that by the time I did my dissertation, I had become a social historian. 
Um, and I, I discovered this particular document. I know we're going to talk about that a little bit more later, but um, I discovered it uh, in the process of putting together lots of court cases to tell a history of sort of the broader issues surrounding slavery and emancipation in, in, in Ghana and in Senegal. Um, didn't know quite what to do with it. But slowly, as I became more and more involved in looking at culture and looking at people's perspectives and not just sort of mass experiences, it kept uh, it kept coming back to me. So uh, that took even, you know, 12 years from when I uh, found the document in its book to um, when the, this book came out. Uh, and so it's been kind of a long slog in which I've become ready to deal with the implications and the issues uh, around it. So um, you describe, you know, in, in, in this book itself, sort of the adventures of a historian in the archives, um, coming upon an unexpectedly wonderful source. Um, tell us a little bit about that, about your discovery of Abina's case. Sure. Uh, you know, the, for me, the National Archives in Ghana are actually a, a special place, um, there's there's one great tree outside to sit under when you need lunch. Uh, there are all of these boxes. Many of them have been not looked through in a long time. As as you go through and you you order books from the staff who are working there, many of whom are are, are really quite splendid. Um, you never know what condition they're going to be in. There were some very hard times in the 1980s uh, when there wasn't sufficient funding to really keep the uh, archives and, and, and keep the documents in the condition that they were normally kept in. Um, and it's gotten quite a bit better, but there's damage over the years. And uh, there seems to have been a period of time in which even the colonial administration was writing with a very uh, acidic ink that ate through the paper. And so one of the things that I did in the late 1990s as I was beginning to put together the social history of emancipation was that I went through the court cases from all the British colonial courts um, of the time, and I managed to pull out 130 or so cases uh, involving allegations of slave owning or slave trading or pawning, that is, uh, holding somebody as in, in debt bondage. But for the most part, these are very small uh, uh, records. Um, they were kept by probably locally trained clerks, um, many of whom wrote down the bare essentials, or by British colonial officials who also weren't interested in keeping long records. And uh, so to come upon one record uh, that is very long, uh, has quite a few moving parts, and moreover that clearly exposes a bunch of, of debates and arguments and, and disagreements that happen in the courtroom, this, this was quite unusual. Um, and, and, and as I said, when I first came upon it, it struck me how unusual it was, uh, how special it was. I recorded the whole thing, uh, but I, I didn't know exactly what to do with it at that time. I was still exploring this notion of, of this idea of what was going on, this idea of how colonial administrators and uh, slave owners really were working out a situation that could benefit both of them. Uh, both groups. And so I, I, I was unable to really pull out of it the meaning that I, I think it's taken me 15, 16 years to get to. 
Um, and I and I don't think I'm at the bottom yet. I think that there's still a lot more in this document to talk about uh, at some point. You know, one way this book is unusual um, we, from most of the books we discuss on this podcast is that it, it very much is a teaching book. It's clearly designed for the classroom. Um, so clearly when you when you saw this document, one thing that struck you about it was that this would be a good way to communicate with an audience beyond a scholarly audience, a good way to get certain things across to to the undergraduates, essentially, who, who uh, many of us you know, are, are working with on a, on a daily basis. And I, maybe it would be helpful if you just said a little bit about the structure of this book um, before we then get a little bit deeper into the story itself and what you see that story telling us. Sure. Well, you know, at, at the heart of this book, uh, it is sort of a, a historian's adventure in part. Um, and so there's an attempt I, I, in, in which I really try, and I must say Liz Clark really tried with me, to explore a couple of questions as reflexively as possible. Um, you know, most histories are presented uh, with some footnotes that discuss where the sources come from. But over time, especially working with oral sources, I've begun to see that this is often insufficient, that we need to have uh, as much evidence available for the audience to deal with, for the reader to deal with, as we can so that they can assess our interpretation. So the first two parts of this book really are um, the original document itself, um, a, a, a transliteration of the original document, and the graphic portion of it, the comic book portion of it, if you will. I don't mind calling it a comic book, by the way. Um, that is an interpretation, and all histories are interpretations. So the, uh, the, the comic uh, section of the book is our interpretation. And then there are two further parts of the book that are also meant to help create a greater reflexivity and to help give the audience tools to assess our interpretation. One of them is just sort of the historical context of time and place, understanding colonialism uh, in terms of its paternalistic uh, perspectives, understanding uh, local uh, society and the way it was working in this period in which formal colonialism was just being imposed on the Gold Coast, but it had been a place of intercontinental exchange for a long time. And then the, the last section is, I guess you could say, a methodological and theoretical guide that is meant to raise the kinds of questions that we ask ourselves and that historians ask ourselves as we uh, write or, or produce histories, as we construct histories. Um, like, how accurate can we be, and, and, and how do we uh, work to be as accurate as possible? But also, are there fundamental truths in here? Um, the issues of Liz Clark, a, a modern-day South African artist, and I, an, an American historian, representing uh, or interpreting the story that comes from what could be called a source, but in fact was a history itself. I mean, Abena, when she spoke in the, in the courtroom... She was constructing a history of her own life, and now we're, we're uh, a step further along interpreting that for her. Um, I wanted to provincialize history and have students think about the fact that local societies, um, the society, the Akan-speaking society in which Abana lived herself, had its own ways of knowing and understanding the past, uh, and that history, that is to say scholarly history such as what we're doing, uh, is just one way of looking at the past and 
It has its own presumptions. And I also wanted them to see, I want the audience to see, first, the kinds of additional sources we worked with, uh, especially uh, the pictures from newspapers of the day and the paintings from the day that helped us to depict as accurately as possible the place and time in which Abena lived, the clothes she would have worn, and those sorts of things. But also, I wanted them to be exposed in, 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 in some sort of way to the theories that were guiding our work. I, I didn't want to wax on forever about Foucault and Derrida and, and Hayden White, but I wanted readers to understand that uh, this was a story that that this was a history that we were implotting, that we were turning into a plot in some ways, that we were influencing it in doing so, and that we were aware of what we were doing, that we were thinking about it, and that these questions were in our minds, and that hopefully these questions should be in the minds of anybody uh, who is doing history, who is interpreting other people's stories. So for me, these four parts of the book are all, are all necessary. They all bear on each other. And it's only possible for an informed reader to understand and critically uh, read the book if they go through all four sections and, and, and think about the process of interpreting Avina's story. You know, and for, I think for, for the reader, um, this sort of balance between uh, the, 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 the kind of multimedia effect of the book, in a sense, right? We've got this sort of graphic history, and I'm going to ask you more about that in a moment, than the the document, the court transcript, and then um, you sort of speaking as a historian about some of the methodological issues and theoretical issues, it, um, it really is a kind of a, a, a very interesting way to think about, um, about how we do history and how we communicate it. I think one thing that I can imagine working, you know, one of the reasons for the book's um, success for the reader is that it starts out just with a story. Um, and, and certainly Abena's story just draws the reader in. And, you know, the first part of the book is the graphic history. Liz Clark is the artist. Um, you sort of are, are the historian. But I wonder, maybe you can just tell us Abena's story. Sure. I, I would be glad to. And, and, and let me say that uh, although I'm, I'm the talker uh, in the pair, so it's, it's probably okay that you're interviewing uh, me, that Liz is, was very much my partner in every way, um, even – and especially in doing the research uh, for what things should look like. Uh, yeah, the, the interesting yeah. thing about doing a graphic uh, a novel like this or a graphic history is that you can't just write about what you want to write about. You have to also constantly think about the background um, and think about doing it accurately. And, and, and that was very, uh, that was quite hard. Um, Abena's story, uh, as, as she tells it, begins with, uh, her life in, in Asante in the interior. Um, we don't know much about her early life because she appears in the historical record, as far as I can tell, only once, only in this document. This is how she immortalized herself. Um, but she was certainly uh, enslaved at a young age uh, in a household in the interior and later in a second household closer to the coast. And then along came uh, a man named Yao, Yao Woa. And what seems to have happened is that Yao purchased her uh, in order to bring her to the coast where he could sell her uh, at, a, at a higher uh, price, make a profit. Although, you know, I've, I've had interesting debates with people as to 
of course, whether or not that's what actually happened. Um, but he told her that he was going to be her husband. Uh, and certainly she says that uh, they, they were as husband and, and, and wife coming down to the coast. And then he left her behind in the household of Kwamina Edu, who was a local uh, palm oil grower. Uh, he had quite a big household. He was, he was a wealthy man. And at a certain point, uh, Kwamina Edu approached her, and she, she thought she had been left behind just for a while, while Yao was going around doing his business. But Kwamina Edu approached her and told her that she was going to have to marry one of his men, um, uh, a man named Tando, who was some kind of a dependent, uh, possibly enslaved himself, although certainly of uh, a higher sort of uh, class or, or distinction. And at that point, she realized that she was basically living as a slave in this man's household. Um, at a certain point, she managed to escape. She made her way to the goal, to Cape Coast, which was a British colony at the time and where slavery was technically illegal. Um, it was also technically illegal where she was staying with Kwamina Edu, but that was out in the countryside and certainly abolition had not been enforced there. When she made it to Cape Coast, she then uh, was, you know, free. She had essentially uh, uh, liberated herself. But she then approached uh, a man who worked in the um, colonial courts, a man named Davis, and she enlisted his help to take her former master, Kwamina Edu, uh, to court in order to have him jailed for enslaving her. And the story in the, uh, in the book, then, is the story... Large, partly of her life, but partly of this court case, as she tries to prove that she was enslaved um, and argues the grounds on which she believes she was enslaved and therefore her interpretation of slavery. While Edu's lawyer, uh, James Hutton Brew, the only real lawyer on the coast and uh, a man who had, was of both European and African mixed heritage, argues that, in fact, she was not enslaved. So it's really a courtroom drama, if you will, that has a lot of implications for understanding what's going on outside of the courtroom, but more importantly, that tells us, I think, what Avina's truth were, was. Her experiences, her perspective, her sense of what was going on, um, and her, her wishes for the world around her. And that's really at the heart of the book, is trying to interpret what Avina's truth was. One of the interesting things about this case um, is that, as you point out, She's already free. I mean, she's made it to the Cape Coast, and she's free. Um, so she she seems to, at least in your perspective, be bringing the case in order to establish her truth, not to gain her freedom. Yeah, and I found that that was quite interesting. Right. No, I, I, I you know, I mean, and this is an interpretation. This is how it's a little I, speculative. Yeah. Right. It, 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 it is right. And this is, and this is what historians do. We interpret. Um, and I certainly, you know, in my my fondest wish is that somebody else comes along and contests my interpretation. And this 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 history and, and Abena's life get treated with the with the respect they deserve as something worthy of of, of discourse and debate. Um, I think that Abena. Well, you, you know, I, I I believe that Abena was in a position where she was um, angry, hurt, defiant, um, and and eventually empowered. She took this her former master to to court because she. Uh, found out that she could. She found out what the law was, and she made the opportunity 
uh, by approaching Davis and having him facilitate the court case. Uh, and she forced these important men to hear her voice. Now, I think that although these important men may have listened to her, they didn't really hear her. They didn't really, they weren't really on the same wavelength that she was on. She was arguing that what mattered were her experiences. They were debating what, what is a slave based on a certain set of rules that had been established over a long time. And it's in the miscommunications between these that we actually learn the most. However, my argument for this book, and the reason that I really wanted to make it into a, a, a comic book, amongst other things, but also something that could be used in the classroom, uh, is that I believe that she wanted to be heard. Uh, she had a voice, and she used it. And even though, in the end, she loses the court case through a bit of trickery and the fact that the odds were stacked against her, uh, I believe that in, in the long term she wins because she makes her voice heard, uh, and, and, and we end up hearing her voice. So yeah, that is that is my basic argument. Um, I don't believe that she was in danger of being re-enslaved. I do believe that she had created a situation for herself in Cape Coast where she lived uh, with some stability. And I think that this was an expression of agency on her part. Let's talk about some of those areas of miscommunication. Even the subtitle, you know, the phrase important men, um, is, is that, that's not an accidental phrase. It's, it, it's sort of a, an entry into one of those areas of what exactly do words mean to, to different protagonists in this story. Right, right. And so, you know, uh, for me, the, the courtroom is the center of, of, of what I'm writing about. Uh, and the courtroom is a place of performance. And the, the place of performance has one audience member who's also a judge, uh, and that is uh, Melton, the, the magistrate, who is, in fact, technically uh, the judge. Uh, he, he, has no, he has no real training in the law, as far as I can tell. He's a colonial official, uh, and he makes his judgments partly based on a rudimentary understanding of British law uh, and also a sort of ethnographic understanding of what's going on and, and a moral code. And it's in that moral code that a lot is... A lot of what's important is actually contained because the important men, as it were, the men in the classroom, all understand the performance. They all understand the code. And it's really a, a middle-class British Victorian Christian paternal code uh, in which slavery is bad, um, but in which adult men are expected to... Um, act as patrons and authority figures uh, with both a, a sense of duty but also a sense of power to young women, whether they be seen as wives, whether they be seen as, uh, as, as something else, as dependents in a different way. And so for these important men in the courtroom, the issues are not did Abana have freedom of, of, of motion, but was she treated the way an important man is supposed to treat uh, his female children or dependents or, uh, or, or, or whomever. Uh, and so there are these questions about um, whether she was mistreated, whether she was beaten. Uh, and, and if we go through court cases like this, they're, they're, the, this, this occurs again and again uh, in the Gold Coast. Uh, certainly any kind of sexual transgression against her would have identified Kwamina Edu as somebody who had crossed that line and who was not acting the way an adult male should act towards a, a young female. 
Um, and there's a history here as well of understandings of slavery that come from the British experience in the Caribbean and abolitionist, uh, abolitionism there. And so slavery is assumed to be something that involves uh, money changing hands and these sorts of things. Uh, and Abena doesn't really know these rules. She doesn't understand exactly on what basis uh, the, the judge is going to make his decision. And so whenever she hears a question that doesn't make sense to her experience, she asserts herself and she says, that doesn't matter. Um, here's what's ma what matters. And there are a couple of times when this happens. Once is when uh, James Hutton Brew, the lawyer for uh, her former master, asks her, well, there are other girls in this area, right? They, how were they treated? Um, were they being treated as slaves? Why aren't they here complaining? And she says, look, this doesn't matter. What matters is my experience in the house. And, and, and she proceeds to talk about her experience. And, and what I think is the most poignant moment is a moment when she's been asked about abstract things like free will. And she responds again by saying, essentially, this isn't what's important. What's important is that I could not take care of my body and my health. And it's in moments like that that you see that what she's arguing is that her story and her experiences matter, not the rules of the courtroom, not British law, whatever it may be, not the judge's paradigm, but her experiences. Now, ultimately, that argument doesn't work, um, and, 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 and she loses, uh, but it, it's so important for us, and it's so important for the book, because it's, it's those arguments that allow us to hear her voice. And you also see moments here where she... Um she sort of acknowledges a kind of a, a confusion around issues of language, not just having to do with multilingualism, but also meaning. Um, you know, like you say, what is slavery exactly? Um, or she's even asked somewhere along the line, you know, was he your master? And she's, she, she doesn't quite understand what they mean by the word master. Um, and it's partly a linguistic issue and partly, you know, that, that – is, is, is the master an important man, right? right. Um, you know, what, what, exactly, what exactly do these terms mean? Um, and this is a multilingual story, and that's probably also important to, to know, right? That um, the courtroom, um, you know, the, the, the proceedings are happening in English. Right, they are. And, and, yeah, and, and someone's translating. And, and one of the steps in the, in, in the future has got to be to go through and sort of try to reverse translate. In fact, um, yeah. Manu Herbstein in, in, is, is in Ghana. Um, this is, he suggested to me that we reverse translate the English to the Chui and then translate it again from the Chui back into the English without you know, looking at the, the original English that we have. And we try to figure out what words were used and what's really being said here, which is a, an immense uh, and difficult task. But certainly, I think one of the history methodologies that might be useful in the future. But of course, Beyond the language itself, you're right, there are these conceptual issues. Um, and uh, James Hutton Brew tries to play with her with these conceptual issues and confuse her. Uh, and in several cases, uh, purposefully, he points out that uh, slavery has been abolished and so everyone is free. And so therefore, doesn't she know she can't be a slave because everyone is free because slavery has been abolished? And of course... It's obvious to us, and it becomes clear that it's obvious to Abena at a certain point that de facto freedom, or sorry, um, de jure legal freedom, legal abolition of slavery is not the same as emancipation. Uh, but, you know, this playing with words is, is one of the confusing things. And I, I think a more important moment for us 
is when Melton intercedes and asks, did she have free will? Um, now, you know, I'm, I'm going to guess that Melton had been reading uh, the kinds of books that were available, Mills and, and Hobbes, uh, uh, Hobson and, and, and others at the time to educated Britons about free will. Um, and he would have had a very different understanding of what free will meant than, than, than Abena. Uh, exactly what does free will mean to her? You know, there is a point later on, uh, because she's confused by that comment at first, there's a point later on when she says, all I know is when everybody else could relax, I had to work. Um, that's certainly an answer to the question of free will, I think, in some ways. But it is in that kind of confusion that a lot of the, the magic happens for us to try to piece what's going on. However, in trying to understand her words, and this is part of why it took me so long to get around to what I actually um, have come to in terms of interpreting this document, uh, in, in trying to interpret her words, I had to first pull away the voices that are really powerful. And for me, this is what I mean by important men, is that the three men in the classroom, uh, sorry, in the courtroom, who all know what's going on, who all know the rules, their voice is primary. And in the colonial record, this is what we see, that the voices of powerful men are at the center, they're there, they're interpretable, we can put lots of them together to understand what's going on uh, from their perspective. But the voices of uh, especially young enslaved women like Abena are in the margins or hidden away, and we have to excavate them. And of course, there's a question, and it's a question in the book, as to how effectively we can excavate them uh, since we are so far from the experiences of these young women. Um, I prefer to believe that we can excavate them, but that in doing so, we have to be as open as possible about what we're doing. And, and that was my intent in this book, was to pull out Abena's voice, but not to do it in a way where I was so arrogant that I said, I really understand this. And one of the great things about working with Liz is that she was on the same page the whole way. You know, I, I I want to talk about some of those issues of the of the collaboration, and you have these very interesting discussions um, later in the book about uh, you know how do we think about truth, how do we think about authenticity, um, whose story is this? Like you say, I mean, of course, everything is brought to us via this court transcript that. Abena did not write down herself, right? right. Uh, there's already a moment of translation, even in getting the story down. But I want to come back to just one more term um, that seems to me important in, again, understanding the gap of experience that's partly linguistics, but also very political. And this is an interesting moment where, um, as you say, she's, uh, she's, she's really um, inspired to flee because... Uh, the man who bought her um, basically tells her she's going to have to marry um, this other man who is a dependent of his in some way. We don't know exactly what the situation is. And among other things, we learn that she believes she already is married. And I thought this was also very interesting, her understanding of what a husband is, of what, what marriage is, and then what comes out in the courtroom, that, no, 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 you're not married at all. Um, tell us a little bit just about that that moment. Yeah, and 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 you know, this is a place in which I I I wish in this particular volume I'd gone a little deeper. I was hesitant to do so, um, partly because the sources that I would be using are are somewhat distant chronologically. But certainly, 
Asante, and the, you know, she starts out in, in, in Asante. Certainly, Asante understandings of marriage, um, we know from Jean Allman's work, for example, uh, in the pre-colonial period were very complex. And there were different ideas of marriage and different degrees of marriage and different ceremonies that one would carry out to be married in various ways. Uh, it wasn't a binary where you're married or single the way it is in, in our society. So exactly what her understandings of marriage would have been and exactly what term was being used there to describe marriage are difficult to know. However, and, I, and I'm quite sure that this is important, um, she believed that she and Yao, Yawoa, were married. Uh, she believed that he had uh, liberated her from slavery or purchased her from slavery in order to be his wife. Um, and as far as we can tell, this is, in fact, because of what she says, this is the moment in which she understands that she's a slave. And it's a moment in which really um, she conceives this will to run away and to, not, to, to be no longer uh, in this household where she's enslaved. Um, and there are a number of interesting, really, really interesting things about it. The first really interesting thing is that uh, when she's approached and told that she must marry Tando, this, this man, um, and she expresses that she, she doesn't want to marry him, there's a transaction involving cloth. And this is part of how we know that Tondo is not a free man, because Kwamina Edu makes clear that he will give her some cloth and that Tondo will not. Um, and the giving of cloth certainly has something to do with uh, belonging, has something to do with relationships. Um, and, and by doing this, what Kwamina Edu is essentially saying is, um, I am sanctioning this marriage. I am controlling this marriage. Um, you're under my power and marrying because I want you to marry, uh, and you have to do it. Uh, and there's really this moment of, of power and gender that, you know, the really exceptional, incredible thing is, is, is that she resists. Now, I want to say something about the historical record on that count. You know, the reason there are so many enslaved young women at this time is partly because British law has made it possible for men to... Uh, leave if they want by saying there is no there is no more slavery here uh, and once men adult men and to some degree adult women hear that there is no slavery they can leave their masters uh, relatively easily but young girls are not in the same situation and young girls also find it much harder to get to court right and and, and to know what's going on in the court in, in fact this is this exceptional thing that Abana manages to do this she manages to liberate herself, get to court, uh, and, 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 and uh, take her, her former master to court. Um, but we don't know how many young women ran away. And we don't know how many young women uh, got better situations. We do have all kinds of stories of adult women from court cases who go to court with their former masters um, in order to be able to take their children with them when they leave. And the fact that older women are, are going to court in order to be able to take their women with them, their children with them, does suggest that there were women who were who didn't have children, especially who were just leaving their masters during this period, um, taking advantage of the fact that slavery was no longer legal. But there's this whole hidden gender element here that we can't know much about. And it's at that point that I, I haven't been able to probe as far as I want to. 
into understanding what's really going on uh, in, in terms of, of marriage. And we just have a few traces, like this court case, that tell us about this. And part of what seems to be happening is a kind of a, a slipperiness between the category of, of wife and female slave, right? But it be, it's, um, it's easier for the important men, or maybe convenient for the important men, to believe that a woman has been married when, again, in her experience, she might have been enslaved. Right. Um, but because of, you know, if, you know, if you have the giving of the cloth um, or if if there have been sexual relations and children, you know, again, it's maybe convenient for the authorities to see this as as marriage rather than enslavement, which helps to explain sort of young girls' vulnerability. Right. You know, and 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 I want to, you know, to me, there's there's a certain villainy to this uh, colonial perception that comes in, this paternalistic perception uh, that brings in this Victorian notion of the paternal uh, father and, and the power and authority that that he should have over his wife and children. But, you know, I also see this as being an act of exploitation by powerful African men who take this British view and use it to drive out all of the, um, I I hesitate to say traditional, but historically, all of the rights that women had historically enjoyed. uh, Things like, you know, for example, this is largely a matrilineal society, at least a calm-speaking society is, and women would have had the right to take their children with them. Um, but, the, you know, over time, in the same period, um, the more powerful men, especially these uh, plantation-owning men um, in, in the local society, managed to convince the British that it had never really been this way and, and, and that um, children belonged with their father, even if, if, if the mother wanted to leave, and all these sorts of things. And so there's a male-male alliance that goes on. Uh, there's, there's no doubt in my mind, there's a male-male alliance that goes on that drives out all sorts of rights that women have. It's also uh, local, uh, powerful local men who have uh, often several wives or, or some wives and some enslaved concubines and such. They manage to convince the British very often that in local society, women are bought. So even if money changes hands, that's just because, not because they enslaved this girl, but because they bought her. And, and, and this distorts the local situation where very often there had been exchange of gifts um, and certain kinds of ritual prices and such uh, being paid, uh, mats and alcohol and things like that being given to a woman's uh, family. Um, and the British know this, that this has been happening in their sort of ethnographic curiosity. Um, and they're easily convinced that wives are paid for. Um, and, and so with the British having uh, authority and local men using that authority to their own advantage, I think women get extremely disadvantaged in this period. And that's part of what we're seeing in this, in this story. Let's talk a little bit about, um, about the artwork. Um, you know, again, Liz Clark, of course, plays a role, as you say, in, in the research and interpreting the materials. But one of the interesting discussions you have in the book is, is what happens when you change genres? Um, you know, if, if you're writing a history book, it doesn't really 
matter exactly what the buildings looked like. I mean, right. unless it might, you might decide that that's the topic of your exploration, but it doesn't have to matter. But boy, if you're, you know, it, it suddenly all sorts of things become become important and necessary to think about. So a whole a whole new research project um, right. comes into being, figuring out what the visual landscape is. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about about how that how that came to be, how that worked itself out in the process. Sure, right. And, and you know, we did so much research to try to figure out what houses should look like, try to figure out what people should be wearing. Um, you know, we made at least one mistake. I know it's been pointed out to me that in, in many cases where we were depicting the palm plantation, we used coconut palms instead of oil palms. Uh, it's very difficult to get at all these sorts of things that are that are not sort of central to your topic, but that you want to be as accurate as possible. And then there are other issues involved in it. Uh, one of the issues was whether or not Abana would be uh, topless in, 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 in the volume. And we did determine that in town, certainly women weren't uh, going around topless, but out in the countryside, um, especially when they were laboring, uh, some women would have been. Uh, and we had to decide whether to depict Abana wearing a, a, a top in the countryside or not. And and that, of course, is one of these things that we mentioned in the book. And we want to talk to students or to other readers about the issues involved in, in, in making that kind of determination and interpretation. But I have to say it was also one of the most pleasant things you can, you can do. Um, to begin with, I, I was so fortunate to find Liz. Uh, I put out a call for sort of proposals on a website, and there were 36 people who responded uh, with, with their, their portfolio for me to look at. And uh, right, right away, I got down to two people who I was very interested in working with. And Liz was just so fantastic. Um, I was looking for a grant at the time to help produce this. And I said to Liz, look, I don't have money yet. Can you draw me just one picture? I know it's bad to ask an artist to draw a picture uncompensated. Uh, but she did it, managed to get us the money that, that, that funded the development of this project, which was very fortunate. Now, I, I think that going to a graphic genre uh, is important. And it's not just important because it opens it up to uh, young readers who wouldn't normally read a, 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 a textbook, or at least not very enthusiastically. I happen to be an, an optimist about the way that learning opportunities are opening up with new media, uh, and to believe that such things as graphic, visual interpretations mixed with text are good for the brain. They're good to, they're good to think about. Um, they make you wonder. They add additional questions. Every time I look at Liz's drawings of Cape Coast, based largely on uh, 1873 to 1874 newspapers printed during a, a war that happened in the area, that the British were involved in in 1873, 1874. Every time I look at those pictures of Cape Coast, I can't help but think, how many students opened this book expecting to see um, straw huts and, 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 and mud villages? And would just look at the pictures and say, huh, I never expected to see this kind of thing in Africa. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the visual images, they play a role in the decolonizing of the mind, and as well as in the, the production of sort of a sense of social place and time. So for me, they were very important, and, and I couldn't have been luckier than to work with Liz. I think we also um, see 
you know, interesting images of, um, of encounters, you know, I was just sort of flipping through the book as we talk. <laughs> and, um, and as you say, clothing, dress mattered a great deal. And of course, there's, um, you know, we see a dre- very European style dress in the courtroom. Um, and we see uh, dress for laboring in the fields. <clears throat> Excuse me, we see, um, I suppose, indigenous dress in the courtrooms as well, you know, urban dress. And I, I think there too, we get a um, a sense of uh, well of world history, something you sort of thematize later in the book. This business of encounters, of of um, of communication across cultures, but sort of mutual transmission and so on and so forth. And I, I think you know, get visually, um, we we get a nice sense of that by seeing. Um, the, the sort of range of dress, the range of physical landscape, the range of architecture, uh, because we do also see straw huts. We see some rural settings um, in which the architecture is quite different. Um, there's, there's just a, a very interesting range of things. You um, thematize late in the book, you talk about um, some of the contexts in which we can interpret the story or use the story to think about how do, how do we think about world history? How do we think about African history? How do we think about the history of slavery? And I wonder if you'd like to maybe, I don't know, pick your favorite. <laughs> uh, how do you see this uh, this coming into, let's say, uh, teaching a course on either world history or African history or um, history of, of British Empire? There's so many, so many angles here. Sure. Well, the, the history of British Empire in the modern day, at least for a period of several decades, was the history of the world in some ways. Um, but to, to answer your question better, I, you know, I I am something of a skeptic of world history as it's often taught uh, and, 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 and as it's often delivered uh, in, in textbooks and in, in other settings. Um, I mean, I'm all in favor of looking at connections and networks and systems and the way in which different parts of the world were connected to each other. But this can have um, a very sort of leveling effect in taking away the sense of difference, in taking away the uh, ideas and perspectives of people living in a place and time. The story of, of the Atlantic slave trade is, is, is always told in the world history classroom. But how often do instructors or, or textbook authors, for example, get at understanding what the Atlantic slave trade felt like uh, and more importantly, how it was interpreted, how it was understood by people uh, in, in Africa or those who were embarked uh, involuntarily on these vessels and, and enslaved and taken to the New World. And so uh, the role that I see Abana playing in, in a world history classroom, and indeed many other texts, is uh, that many other texts that are often seen as sort of primary documents sort of things, is to make students experience alterity, to make them think about the way a place and time looked to people who lived in it. I actually think that that's at the heart of liberal education. I think it's at the heart of what we should be doing in history, is helping students to critically understand that uh, the human experience is varied and that even people involved in the same network or system will understand it in different ways. Clearly, clearly we can understand uh, and, and many world history textbooks do a really good job of helping students understand this sort of colonial Victorian mind view on race and gender and things like that. But um, how how are we to get at the perspective of the people who were uh, largely victimized by this process? How do we do that? 
So I, well, I believe that giving students this in, in a world history classroom, the sort of broad perspective of, of what happened is important. I think that it's also important to give them the sense of people's perspectives um, set in place and time. I also think it's important to teach them to question historical power. When I was doing a Fulbright in South Africa, one of the places I was working at was the University of the Western Cape. And in their first year history course, their main objective is to teach students to question. And they do this partly by putting themselves up in pairs in front of them to debate important topics in the past and to show that um, it's okay to, to, to question the textbook, it's okay to question the professor. And I wanted to uh, provide a set of tools by which students could question me, could look at my interpretation and ask whether it was right or wrong. And again, Liz really helped out with that, partly by um, exposing to me the whole process that she was going through and illustrating and trying to get at, you know, an accurate sense of what was going on in the past. And so um, I'm really most excited when I hear back from people who are using this textbook in, in, in that way to help students to really think critically. Now, again, I think this is a historical interpretation. I think that the original document is a history, and I wouldn't dare to have students look at my interpretation without them also looking at the original document and hopefully hearing Abena's voice as well uh, and comparing the two. Um, and that's, that's, I think, you know, I think actually as a contribution to Ghanaian national history, um, this is not as important a book. Uh, and, and I hope it's, it's, it's important in terms of really advancing the teaching of the sorts of things that I've just been talking about. Well, one of the things that you also do talk about, not only did you have to sort of research um, uh, images and the visual landscape, but certainly in turning this into a graphic history, um, you, know, you had to do things like invent dialogue, right? right. Um, you know, <laughs> show um, you know debates among the the important men about uh, just how far um, the authorities should go in enforcing the ban on slavery. And in that sense, you know, you you knew some more about some of these characters than others, and and in some cases, you had to sort of. Um, you know, let individuals stand in for groups of people and have words come out of their mouths yes, that, that are not documentable, that, that, that aren't documented. Right. But that um, so so in a sense, what what we see is a, a debate that happened at a societal level, at a political level, but an opportunity for students to understand um, the fact that by by having, you know, speech balloons and words being put into specific individuals' mouths, um, you and Liz Clark were, were making, making decisions of interpretation that this, 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 this particular guy comes from the, the milieu that probably would have felt this way about slavery. Right. Um, and, 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 and you make very transparent your decision-making process in that and obviously invite students to, to note those places. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, Vancina, Jan Vancina challenged uh, African historians, I think, to explore the limits of speculation, um, especially where the alternative is silence. Uh, and we try to navigate that particular debate as, as best we can. Um, but I think, you know, my own personal 
appealing about it is that, uh, first of all, everyone interprets, all historians interpret. And so, yes, we're interpreting and we're, we're going a little bit further than most historians would go, in fact. But we're compensating for that by making it clear that we're doing that, by making it clear where we're doing that, by presenting the original document for um, comparison, and by talking a lot about uh, both the advantages and disadvantages as we see them of, of, of taking those particular leaps. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I'll admit that I, I'm somewhat influenced by Hayden White's arguments that we implot when we write history, just like when we write uh, fiction, uh, if the two are different. Um, and I think they are. We, 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 we nevertheless, we put plots in there. And I was very struck by the fact that um, as somebody who was brought up by uh, a mother who uh, I would say is a feminist and who had been trying to read and learn uh, gender uh, on my own, uh, as it were, uh, through my college career and also with, 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 with instructors who helped me out, I was very conscious that I wanted... Abena to be a, a woman who was powerful um, in her own way and who fought repression and who really fought for her own liberation and fought for her voice. And I was concerned all along that I was reading that into the story and that maybe that's not what she was like. I don't think that's what happened, but I did want to put the seed of that idea in the mind of the reader so that the reader could decide for themselves whether the way that uh, I, and this is my fault, not Liz's, but the way that I had implotted the story was accurate or not. You're talking about, um, about speculation when silence is the alternative, such a nice kind of ending point because the, uh, the graphic novel itself, you know, we see this very frustrating moment at the end of the court case, Abena loses, yes. and she kind of says, you know, I, I've been silenced. No one hears me, and she sort of vanishes. She goes out the door, and she's gone. Um, and then we have a kind of this moment of recovery where, of course, her voice is heard because the transcript is discovered by you, namely. Um, and, and it's, you know, there's, there's a... A, a, a little bit of a triumph there. Um, um, but, you know, again, acknowledging that if the alternative is silence, um, bringing this, this story to light in whatever incomplete way um, and involving whatever speculation we need to insert into it and interpretation um, is still better than having it disappear entirely. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a, a, a lovely acknowledgement of the limitations of history, but also the value of doing what we can do. Yeah, I do. You know, I, 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 sometimes I spend a lot of time being very skeptical of um, history and, and the way it operates and the connections between knowledge and power. I always come around in the end to believing that um, while it's important that we provincialize history and we think about the fact that people relate to the past, through memory, through tradition, through nostalgia, through heritage. Um, nevertheless, his, doing history is an important act, um, but it's important that we do it consciously. It's important that we do it reflexively. Um, it's important that we consider what we're doing and the way that we're exerting power when we do it. And I think that that's another one of the, the lessons that I hope that I put in this book for those readers who are students to think about. It's a really, really um, interesting piece of work. It gives us an awful lot to think about, uh, both in terms of reconstructing this history and what it is we do when we're doing history. Let me ask you, um, what's, what's next for you? What are you working on now? 
Uh, yeah, well, thanks for asking. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a couple of different uh, projects. Um, one of them for Oxford is actually a world history book, uh, a textbook, but it's, it's, it's meant to be somewhat innovative and to focus partly on this question of how events in world history uh, and trends in world history are remembered and memorialized by people today. Um, but it also, the project involves four more uh, graphic histories that I'll be working on with other people. Um, certainly, one of them is going to be uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, and there, there are a couple of others. However, another part of what I'm going to be doing is to return to Abana's story and to try to fill in some of the holes that I think are in this book um, and that are, if you will, even more speculative. Uh, a, a great book has come out recently with more than 7,000 proverbs, um, Akan proverbs, many of them having to do with slavery and gender and cloth. I'm going to try to use those as well as some of the interviews done by Gene Allman, um, Ellen Tajan, and, and, and other scholars to try to sort of reconstruct a sense of uh, how power really operated around gender um, in the lives of someone like Abena. And I'll be able to use many of the other court cases from this time to inform it. Uh, and I'd like to do that to, to go a little further. I'd also like, if I'm going to write something like that, probably as an article, I'd also like to talk a little bit more about the question of race. I didn't put race centrally in this book. And that's partly because I think liberals like Melton, for whom everyone was performing, um, were more interested in a civilization discourse than a race discourse. It was still a racist discourse, but it was a different one. Um, but I, I, I do think that um, there's more to be said uh, about race in this place and time, uh, both in the courtroom, but more importantly, what Abena would have encountered uh, regarding race outside of the, the courtroom. So I don't see this book as a finished product yet, or rather it, it, it's a stage. Um, it's, it's one product that in a longer course that I'm going to be exploring into the future. Sounds wonderful. This sounds like we have a lot to look forward to. Um, Thank keep you. track of your work. Um, this has been really, really interesting. Um, the book, again, is Abena and the Important Men by Trevor Argetz and Liz Clark. And we've been speaking with Trevor today. Thanks so much for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And then the next two families are, you know, um, a deep gorge away. And so in the mountains, people still had some grain. And the women that I interviewed took the cloth that they wove and they took it to the mountains and they traded it for grain, corn and other things, and brought it down and saved their families from starvation. So that was a moment where um, the fact that they still had cloth production skills really saved their families' lives. But the longer term... Um, uh, consequence of the Cultural Revolution is that men go off to work on these big projects. They don't stay away that long, but when they come back, they don't go back in this area into basic level agriculture, unskilled agriculture. By this time, the women have taken over basic level farming. The men, they build some irrigation works. They go to work in small-scale rural uh, tractor repair plants or chemical fertilizer plants. Some of them become labor supervisors of farmers, but increasingly basic level farming is done by women. And 
you know, the conventional story is that agriculture became feminized in China starting in the 1980s, after the death of Mao and with the current era of economic reforms. But actually, in the area that I was studying, and I suspect in many other areas as well, agriculture became basically feminized by the late 1950s, the early 1960s. And it did free up male labor to go do other, usually higher status, better remunerated kinds of things. But then you really do get a situation where people are working in the fields all day, uh, women, not only to supplement their family income, but to keep basic level agriculture going. And then they're going home and doing needlework at night. And to me, that's the one of the great untold stories of China's economic development is that so much of it is undergirded by uh, undercompensated, um, uh, undervalued, and sometimes completely occluded varieties of female labor. You know, one of the things that you talk about is the ways that women's narration of their own stories differs, not surprisingly in a way, from official narrations. But you you cast this often um, in terms of thinking about their sense of time. They're not thinking, like you said at the beginning of our interview, they're not thinking about the big campaigns. They're thinking about perhaps this blur of time when they were taking care of lots of kids and farming and doing needlework in the middle of the night, or they're thinking of the years particular children were born or died. And I wonder if you can talk some about, about these insights you had about their sense of time and maybe what you might call official time. When, when, does, when does feudal life, when does the old society end? When does the new society begin? Right. Well, the state, uh, as I said before when I was talking about feudalism, makes this very powerful language available within which people can narrate their past. And one of the um, kinds of state language that gets used often in these speaking bitterness narratives I was talking about earlier contrasts the old society with the new society. And the old society is supposed to be any time before 1949, and the new society is after 1949, after the establishment of the People's Republic of China. But women often remember it differently. They get the term the old society and the new society. They understand that the old society was bad and the new society is better. But sometimes they say, well, the old society, that lasted until after the end of the Great Leap Famine in the 1960s. Or they'll say, the old society, that happened... Uh, That lasted until the beginning of the economic reforms in the 1980s. So by shifting the goalposts around, by shifting the the dates around, they're actually doing a kind of, I don't think it's exactly conscious, but it's not unconscious either, critique of the state and state terminology. They're saying our material conditions did not change as much earlier as they have changed later, and we still had enormous hardship in that period. Now, I don't know... We interviewed some men in the same age group. I don't know whether there was an extremely systematic gender difference in the way men would have talked about time. Um, And I can't tell because many more women um, in the age groups we were interested in were still alive than men. If we would go into a village and we would say, tell us the names of everybody over the age of 70, it would come back, you know, with, with a couple dozen women and two men. So even if we had been setting out to interview uh, equal numbers of each, which, you know, we were more interested in 
women's labor and domestic labor and so forth, but even if we'd wanted to do a more even-handed study, um, we weren't doing this interviewing in the 1970s. We were doing it in the 1990s and 2000s, and we were at the mercy of who was still around. So it does seem to me there might be a divergence between what I call the campaign time of the state, that is, time organized according to these big state initiatives, um, and popular time in the rural areas in general. But I do know that for women in particular, because their daily lives looked different from those of men, because domestic labor, was prim especially needlework, was primarily their responsibility, because they ended up with a lot of the responsibility for agriculture um, as of the late 1950s, I do know that their sense of campaign time, uh, official state time, was extremely fuzzy and that they would, without any trouble at all, just scramble the order of things, forget about a couple of decades, you know, skip directly from the 19, uh, late 1950s to the early 1980s and only be able to answer stuff about the 60s and 70s if you ask them very specific questions. Those are their peak childbearing years and their... Um, the years where they got the least sleep, and, and, and they're all one big blur. Um, so I do know that women organized time differently from official state time, and that they were extremely precise about it um, on one measure, and that was if you wanted to find out exactly when something happened, you would ask, well, when was your first son born? Well, when was your second son born? And they organized it by, uh, you know, calendar years mean very little to them. They're not, they're, they're still mainly using the lunar calendar, and, they, and calendar years just don't come up. But year of the dragon, year of the rat, year of the ox, year, and so forth, all of those mean something to them. So my son was born in the year of the dragon, and this year he is. So you could tell which year of the dragon. It comes around every 12 years. You could tell which one it was. If you ask them, how old was your kid when the Great Leap happened? How old was your kid during the land reform? Suddenly their notion of time would get extremely precise, and you could put things in, in, in a very precise order, which was not the way their memory organized it unless you brought up the Chinese zodiac signs. Then, then, then they found something that they could hang the order on. And there's this, um, the book includes pictures, including photographs of some of your interview partners. And it also includes a photo of um, a sort of a posting of the zodiac signs and your effort to organize stories, to use those as a kind of an aid that's, that's, um, for the women. That's right. And I, I don't know whether, I mean, partly they organized it that way because we introduced the zodiac signs mm -hmm. and, and asked them about it. I don't know if they would have narrated it that way left to their own devices. And that brings up a kind of bigger methodological question. You know, when you go in and do an oral history, uh, you're partly asking people to narrate their own lives, to, to think of their lives as a narrative. I, I don't know about you. I would have a lot of trouble narrating my own life in that way with any sort of precision and level of detail. Um, and it is true even in a culture you know, these women are mostly, they're in a storytelling culture. They're in a, they're not, uh, most of them have very rudimentary literacy, which they got as adults and, and then lost most of because they didn't use it in their daily lives. A lot of stuff is transmitted orally. Um, but, but still, um, it's, it, it's a, it, it's a fuzzy kind of drifting thing. And so we had to pay a lot of attention to what kind of prompts do we give them that don't uh, organize the narrative for them rather than letting us understand what it was they remember.
you know, if we provide too many signposts, then we've provided a whole framework and then we discover they have our framework. That's not very interesting. If we, if we provide no signposts, sometimes people would go right into a, a long impassioned account of how they got cheated in a business deal five years ago and they're still upset about it, you know, and not tell us anything about the earlier time period. So we spent a lot of time experimenting with different uh, question asking techniques and then trying to stand back and get out of the way and pay attention to what people told us when we didn't know enough to ask. Those are usually the really important things. You know, one of the, when you um, sort of when you examined your own interviewing and the uh, what came out of it and what didn't come out of it, one thing you comment on is this question of kind of interiority and internal life, and and our hope, perhaps as historians or as biographers, that if you sort of wait long enough, you'll get someone's internal life. And there, it seems that no matter what technique you took, you ended up having questions about whether that was a sensible approach. Yeah, well, this mostly came out in our attempt to talk to people who had been official labor models. I mentioned that we started with Sao Jusyang, who was who had become a cotton-growing labor model. That was the virtuous widow. But we interviewed a number of others, and they're very lively, interesting women, some of them, uh, and they have very vivid memories of such things as going to Beijing to meet Chairman Mao at a, or be greeted by Chairman Mao at a, at a large Congress of labor models and so forth. Um, but what becomes pretty clear in all of this is that in order to become a labor model, you didn't just emerge as somebody who could talk eloquently about the best way to top off cotton plants and apply fertilizer and so forth. That what usually happened was a team of activists from the Women's Federation or uh, some other government agency would descend on a village looking for someone who was a skilled farmer uh, that could be used as a model. And then they would essentially, it's a kind of Pygmalion-like thing, they would teach that woman to talk about what she was doing, and sometimes they would compose, they would take what she told them and compose jingles and rhymes and so forth and inspirational stories and produce materials that were meant to disseminate, actually, in, in many cases, the highly technical knowledge these women had to other people by putting a human face on it. So this human face that gets put on it is actually a kind of group production, which involves the intervention of all of these um, women from the Women's Federation, uh, the woman herself, um, people who write down everything that she says, people that answer her letters for her since she's usually illiterate, and so forth. And the idea that um, what you're getting when you get these stories is... is uh, the actual interiority of these women. You know, if you look at the process by which the stories are produced, now it's much more of a collective production. But then even beyond that, what I found really interesting was that when you tried to talk to these women about what were the most inspiring moments in your life, what's the thing that made the deepest impression on you or moved you the most, um, they often quite completely inhabited the labor model role and rhetoric that had been co-created by them and all of these women's federation activists. You know, that became the deepest truth of their life. And it did make me wonder, you know, what is this habit that we have of running around looking for a private self that is somehow intact, that's distinct from what's presented publicly, 
And that is the real truth of the self. And of course, I'm not the only person to ever ask this question. I think it is the thrust of, in fact, a lot of post-structuralist and feminist critique that happened over the last 25 years. But in the case of these rural women, it was really very striking that, you know, you better not assume that you're getting to the core of, of someone's self when they're telling you these stories, because otherwise you're only going to flag those things that most closely resemble your own notion of what you think a self should be. And, you know, you'll, you'll look around everywhere and you'll find some slightly exoticized version of you, yourself, the interviewer, the historian, and that's very bad practice. So it's just a tension in the work between the fact that these women are spectacular storytellers and what they're often revealing with the greatest emotion is not that which you would expect to find. It's an interesting book in part because it does blend sort of revealing this history that we know so little about and at the same time raising really useful methodological questions for anybody involved in oral history. Let me ask what you're, um, what you're working on now. What can we look forward to? Oh, I wish I could tell you what I was working on. Oh, <laughs> I mean, one thing that happens in the wake of a 15-year project is you have to clear out your head and do a little reading and thinking. Actually, what I'm working on now is, is a textbook because I was asked um, to do a textbook on, on women in recent Chinese history. And I realized um, I first got into this project, the Gender of Memory Project, looking for a kind of teaching material I didn't have. And now I've finished this huge fat book and I'm still um, looking for a kind of teaching material that I don't have, which goes like this. I, I would like to write a book that can be used alongside more conventionally organized books that says, look, at every moment in uh, the last couple centuries of Chinese history, if you tilt the lens a little bit and make and foreground gender, how, do, how does this big narrative look different? And I don't think gender is the only lens one can use. And even within gender, as, as I found in this work, generation and region and uh, class and many other things make a huge difference. Um, I want to systematically try to trace through the question of um, who had this revolution and all of the events associated with it. How have they played out differentially depending upon who people are and where they're located. And gender, I still think, is one very useful lens through which to do this. So I figure by the time I, I, I finish sorting out the textbook, maybe by the end of next year, I will have another thought in my head for a major research project. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to take me that long. Well, I think the textbook will be enormously useful to an awful lot of people out there. I hope so. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of people looking forward to it. This has been just fascinating. I recommend the book um, very highly, The Gender of Memory, Rural Women and China's Collective Past by Gail, Gail Hirschhatter. Uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you, and I look forward to, to reading what you have next. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs> Bye-bye. We've been talking to Trevor R. Getz, who collaborated with Liz Clark on Abina and the Important Men, a Graphic History, which came out with Oxford University Press in 2012. I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us.